<laughs> and so, Ian and Carla, Janeri from Mozambique, they came for our service today, amen. All the way, flew up, landed, and going to be flying back tomorrow. No, I'm just teasing. Yeah. Actually, in all seriousness, I am blessed because I've known Ian since grade school? You were in grade school? Eighth grade. Okay, since he was in the eighth grade, with, uh, you were a grade ahead of my son, if I remember right. And so they knew each other and many other young men and, uh, that I was able to help minister to and different things over the years. And so I just feel like I'm like a distant uncle in your life. How's that? So here you go. All right, so um, I'm not going to make them stand up because I'm going to hear about it later, but y'all can turn around and look at my boys. They're, just for a second. That's fine. Um, my oldest is Tobiah on the right. Gideon in the middle is our youngest, and Jaden is second born like myself. Um, we... Uh, together made the decision in 2000, and really in 2013, 14, but we made the leap in 2015 as a family to head out to the continent of Africa, which was not the continent I thought I would be on. And uh, Carla's known that she was going to probably be on that continent since she was four or five years old. I tried to persuade her to Japan, Australia, a lot of different places, um, but the Lord made it clear that if I had not married her, it would not have been Africa, and so I'm very grateful. But part of our story, and I don't want this to be missed today, um, I was really thinking about this. Thank you for that set list. That was an amazing set list, and uh, I just really felt what the Spirit was doing. You, I had a feeling you changed a couple of things in the last uh, days or maybe a week, and so I'm grateful for that. I was definitely, I'll take full ownership that that was for me, and um you know, as we were singing, uh, nothing I desire, that, that song is like, that's foundational for me here. I was just up the road when I heard that song for the first time um, at Aurora Heights Assembly of God. And I grew up here kind of like seventh grade on. I was one year in Kenai, and then the rest of the time I was, I was here. So I graduated 1996 Bulldogs, and uh, grateful to be standing right here. This wasn't here. It was actually, most of what Henry did was out of his house, Pastor Henry. Um, his son meant a lot to me. A lot of these people meant a lot to me. So to stand here and to hear the words and songs of some of the foundational things that move my spirit um, is a big deal. Like, I'm looking around, you know, Clay was a pillar in my life through the ups, the downs. Like, hopefully I he sees that with me too. Um, even seeing Amber was just like, there's just... Seeing Pastor Henry, seeing the Birdalls, Clay, getting to hang out with Clay, hearing those songs, Miss Matson, seeing Amber for a second. For me, that's like, in my head, like pillars, even if it was just a moment. Because most of the time when I had something dynamic go down in my life at Aurora Heights or during those years, Amber was around. I can remember it in my head, her walking through the foyer or you know, something uh, similar. When I was running cross-country, playing basketball, track, it was most of the time, it was with Mary Glaze and Annie Birdall were within the unit, like, running or going. And so I'd always see them. And it was like they were a safe place of all the families 
when I was either whatever, dealing with teenagers deal with in their head, at a race, in the moment, whatever, like you can, I can look up and go, oh my goodness, in the crowd, there were certain people that I just knew were safe. And that's what this place means to me, is that there's a lot, there's been a lot of struggle in my life here, but where I heard and where I encountered God was like within meters of here. Um, where I got in trouble and walked through stuff that I had to have the community or people have patience was right in the, like in this land right here. And so for my boys to be sitting here is amazing. And without turning too much attention, I'm, I want you guys to hear part of the story of just for a second here of that they said yes to God, too. I don't want that to be missed. Um, as we dis- de- declare our story I, today, I want that to, to be honored in the in the atmosphere because right now what I saw in here was a bunch of parents cool with their kids hearing from God celebrating what the Lord could do being patient with them letting them run around and be in a safe place and that is what's going to change the community that is what's going to actually bring out the call in people's lives that's what's going to help them remember the father in their life and so my boys in 2013-14, Carla started challenging them with, at kind of at dinner time, hey, what if we moved? What if we lived somewhere else? What if God said for us to go out? Because when we were younger, when we were recording together, missions was the foundation. Baseball, I had abandoned baseball in my life, um, which most people knew for me here, and she had challenged us that we were going to be going into missions. And when we met, that was kind of our courtship, was talking about where God was going to send us. And then 15 years passed, and we thought the Lord had forgotten about us, and her nursing career, and us having businesses, a a baseball instructional school, and financial service businesses, and all this stuff happened, and then we just didn't forget. And in 2013-14, the Lord really started just breaking my heart and her heart again for the go, for the the send-out, for the all-in. And uh, she started challenging the boys in their heart because they had already we'd already started teaching them to hear from the Lord on their own. And that's what we're going to kind of focus in on today. The big message today is that for us the gospel of the living God is to hear him. When 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 time began he said and God said. That's the first interaction with the planet is that he's a God that speaks. Last night, someone was uh, talking to us, and we were trying to, they were trying to weigh in on Abraham in their own life, but I think it was really good, but we miss sometimes that, yes, Abraham was obedient when he left his land, but the reason he left his land from an Eastern culture perspective is because the first time ever in all of the stars that he believed in, the moon that he believed in, the animism that Abraham believed in, was that God spoke to him. Get up and go. He had never had that happen, ever. Why? His culture was very similar to the one I live in. They didn't leave their family. It was like Nikiski. You either go and never come back, or you stay. You know what I'm saying? Like, And you're with your brothers and your sisters, and you walk through the junk, and you walk through the mess, and you watch the addiction, and you watch the cleaning, and you watch the healing. I'm so sad I don't get to see Kim Grimes' mom today. I'm like, bummed. But I was so glad you guys prayed over her. 
So I was like sending Kim a message. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm sitting here with the Birdalls, and it was so good thinking of you, you know? Because that's, that, I love that, about, I think that's what I love about the land here is that everyone's connected. But as you guys know, coming from living in small towns, you also hate that. Like, but in the Eastern culture, that's how it continues to be in Africa. They don't, they don't leave 20 miles away from themselves. They, they may never be 50 miles away from each other. And so what we want you guys to hear today in this message is that he's the God that speaks. And he wants you to hear him. And our, we had taught our boys to listen to that. And in 2015, we made the decision to leave. Every one of those three said yes. We weren't going to leave. We weren't going to be, and we have no problem with other missionary families that do that, but we, we wanted to break that, that mold of a hundred years ago when missionaries went out, they didn't get to be around their kids and that suffering they went through because of sickness and disease and all that. But with technology, we knew like they could say yes or no. And that's the season they're in. So if they seem quiet, they've become teenagers now and they're transitioning from that call to their call. And that's hard. It's really hard. They don't say it. I see it in their eyes. I see it in their emotions. Because sometimes we don't want to let go of that safe place and trust that we're still hearing him. The friends that I've gotten to see other than Clay and Jackie, they're doing amazing. The, the other friends I've seen, that's what they, that's what we bring to the table when we see him and we encourage him is like, dude, you helped me hear from God. Don't forget you still can. And he hasn't forgotten you. You can hear him. He's, he's still speaking to you today. And so what I want you to hear in this is the simplicity of that, that we're just like you guys. We're flesh and blood. Like, there's nothing superior about what she's going to say or I'm going to say just other than we said yes. And I haven't even communicated about slides. When we want the slide, we'll just, like, give you a thumbs up or say next. Is that cool? Um, but we're, we're, we're flesh and blood. There's nothing different other than we heard God and just responded. I wake up every morning still not understanding the culture I live in. Like, I wake up every morning at 5, er, 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 like it's so early, oh my gosh. And there's like a, a gazebo out front, that's the culture. And the, the culture there is when they want to talk to you, they come up to your front door and they go, Odie, 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 and they just sit there. Like, they'll sit there for four hours until you come out. Odie, right? If I mean, Alaska may be a little different. I was a little nervous walking up to my buddy Nate Connor's house. I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. But um, in Phoenix, if you were to do that, to sit on someone's like front driveway for an hour and call out, hey, they either think you're a solicitor, a th you're going to get a gun in your face. That's what's going to happen. But in Africa, that's like, that's the norm. And it's still, it's still frustrating to me. I'm so Western still. It's like, I'll be four steps in going, I'm going to read this guy the riot act. And the Lord's like, remember where you are. And I'm like, I can still choose whether to hear that or not. And so we're normal. I just want you guys to just hear that. Like, still have the same emotions, the same feelings, everything. We still love to catch fish and eat it. Like, it's still the same, the same. And so. When you catch it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I got one. I got one. So. Anyways, it's good to be here, but I wanted you guys to know that about my kids. They, they heard from God. That's why we're there. It wasn't just because Carl and I made a decision. It was all five of us. And if, that, if that's you in the room right now going, 
hey, which direction should I go? What's best for my kids? When we leave here today, I hope you're encouraged to just teach them to hear from the Father yourself. And if you'll do that, I promise you, I promise you, he'll be faithful to fulfill it because I'm standing in the land. I'm standing in the land where he promised it. Um, when she sang that song, one of the ones that, that I used to walk to school in the morning, you know, when everyone thinks you're like the high popularity contest going on. Well, at night, you know, or I mean in the morning when it's pitch dark in Alaska and you're walking the school bus in the snow uphill, not barefoot, right? And you're freaked out about moose or bears or whatever and you're alone, all of a sudden prayer becomes a thing. Like, we'll all admit it. Or we won't admit it, maybe. But I used to sing that song, I worship you, almighty God. You guys remember the words? There is none like you. I learned that walking back and forth on Jan Lane in the morning, in the pitch black, and then when I would get to the school bus and Chris Edwards is there, I'd stop singing. But it was those moments in the land that I was learning to hear from God and learning to navigate the fears and all that stuff. And so that's, what, that's all our family's done is, is when we went, we just wanted them to hear from God. That's what we've been wanting the, the people there to do. And so today, that's kind of the message is what are, you, what are you really hearing out of this? We don't want it to be about the mission and stuff. We want you to, to ask the question, Father, what do you want me to know about this, what's been said? Um, and so hopefully we'll shine a light in the darkness on that, like the words say. So I'm going to let Carla introduce some of these slides, and then she's going to go ahead and go into her side of, of what she does. Next. <laughs> I'm from Tucson, Arizona. Uh, I've been to Alaska once on a cruise ship with my mom, so... Uh, it's a different culture for me, too. So this is us seven, about seven years ago in Mozambique. We started in central Mozambique, and this is us. Actually, this is in Malawi, the neighboring country. For those of you that don't know, Mozambique is along the continent of Africa on the east. If you after go look at the, the map, and Malawi is our neighboring country, and we, we also serve, have colleagues and friends there and do a little vacationing there because uh, it's by the, one of the biggest lakes there in Africa. Next. So we serve through YWAM, Youth with a Mission. Don't know if you've heard of them. Uh, a lot of what we do in our family is Mercy Care, uh, Raphael Clinic, El Rafa, the God that heals is a, a vision uh, that's coming to pass. Um, we're looking for $100,000 to, to build. We have land for that. So we're in the process of that, and that will house our palliative care uh, we're children under five. Uh, in our area of Mozambique, uh, we live in a province called Niassa. It's known as the Forgotten Province. Um, to get a child to five years old is the goal. If you can get a child to five years old, their life expectancy nearly doubles. So that's the goal there. Discipleship and evangelism. I like to say we just disciple in everything we do. Whether believer or non-believer, it's about discipling and reflecting in our lives. We don't always do it well. Um, but when we mess up, we disciple on how to, <laughs> how to reconcile that. So discipling in everything we do, evangelism in everything we do, community development, youth and young adult education. Our population is probably over 90% illiterate. 
Uh, we work with a people group called the Yao. There is a people group, the Yao in China, a Muslim group, but this is an African group called the Yao, uh, mostly practicing what we call folk Islam, which is a mixture of animism with uh, Islamic religion mixed in. So a lot of illiteracy, and everything is um, brought on the audio Bible usually. Leadership, again, in all areas. Next. Community development. I love this picture because people say, how do you develop the community? And it can be as simple as uh, trash. So this is the hospital trash pit in back of the hospital here. There's, it's not gated. It's not walled. On the right is when they asked us to, to build to secure it. So the kids would come and play in that during the day. During COVID, they would take used masks out and sell them after they washed them. So for me, my big, uh, I know Ian, just my big champion for, for the community and for the world is dignity. I think when we look at the cross, it, it represents dignity for all people, whether believer or non-believer. And that's what God's really showed me in the years is bringing dignity in all areas to people. So that's community development. So when, when we can see people through the cross, no matter how ugly and messy they are, um, that for me is the key. So this is one area of community development. Community development. Next. Another thing we work on is identifications, getting people simply their ID cards so they can get a bank account, so they can do something more than in their little square radius. Sanitation, that toilet on the right is a toilet we, how do you say, rehabilitated in the hospital. That one wasn't working. Uh, water, we just recently dug two wells, one on our clinic property and one on another property. Uh, our area is one of the least reached for, for water. So a lot of times, um, I'm always careful. I know in Alaska we're very political in Texas, but a lot of reason we use vaccinations and things in other countries um, is because of sanitation. So in, in, in uh, malnutrition. So if we don't vaccinate children, um, they die from common disease like diarrhea because they don't have the food and water source. So for us, water in, in, in like I said, taking care of children under five is a big deal. Housing, we do a lot of housing projects, <laughs> which Ian just loves now, don't you, Ian? Um, building for special needs, um, orphans, widows. This bigger house on the left, um, we have a little girl, Rosa, with uh, insulin-dependent diabetes, and it's been a miracle that she's stayed alive this long. So we built her a, a house to live in there. Ian, there with our four local colleagues, during COVID, we just fixed this uh, big water tank, so we had water, clean water at the hospital for hygiene. Um, this is me walking uh, with the director of the hospital, the, the uh, health director of the uh, community and my physician friend just taking them out in the community to see what it's really like to remind them of what they came from. That's our front yard, That's our front yard there. Government hospital people and 
feet than the bridge. And that land they're walking towards is literally where it's going to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't That's know nice. that anyone has ever challenged those doctors to go out and say, let's do this. It is. Now, can I say that? Housing repairs. Uh, people live in basic housing. In our area, it's mostly mud, brick, with uh, plastic, with grass roofing, so we have to replace that frequently. Some areas farther out where we go, it's simply grass huts they live in. Uh, schooling fees. Um, although Mozambique is more of a, a communistic, socialistic country, they used to have to pay for school. Education advancement. I have a colleague now, Kashusha, that was accepted to go to Perth, Australia for health school, um, so we're looking to raise $12,000 for him. I'm a huge advocate of, uh, I do believe in child sponsorship, but what I've learned quickly in a, a war-torn country as Mozambique is to invest in the young adults that love Jesus, to disciple and minister to their their own people. I think it's, uh, I was talking to a friend of ours the other day who's ex-military, was in Af- Afghanistan and Iraq, and something I told him I've learned from war is you got to, missionary life is kind of like war sometimes. you got to get in and do what God's called you to do and equip the believers, equip the locals to, to take care of their own people in their own country. So that's really, that what is what creates sustainability, I believe. Uh, financial education, Ian does a lot of teaching on finances and how do you take $1 and, and live off of that and do that well. In business startups, we help people start Tomato business, shoe business. Uh, we have a friend starting a rice business, again, for sustainability. Next. Youth and young adult education. These are two of our colleagues. This is Ferreira on the left and Samurai on the right. Cool name, Samurai. Uh, they do a lot of youth education in our villages, and that's their thing. If they ever want to build a school, I said, that's great, but that's your thing. So really um, empowering them to do what God's called them to do, um, and they do that very well. Uh, Ferreira's in a couple villages and does children's ministry. Um, Samurai is finishing 12th grade and uh, teaching English um, to some of the population as well as Portuguese and doing what we call discovery Bible study is the way we, we do Bible study. Next. Leadership. This is one of my great passions. On the left there is a colleague of mine, uh, Sergio. He's from Chile and he is with YWAM, um, also in Mozambique to the north. And after five years of prayer, we were allowed into the provincial hospital, which is two hours north of us. So Sergio's a physical therapist by trade. I'm a registered nurse. And this lady he's training there has been 20 years a physical therapist, but through prayer and a relationship now I've established with the hospital director, we were allowed to come in and teach about palliative care, dignity, and holistic approach to uh, children born with cerebral palsy. So really, this is him starting a pilot program um, and empowering these Mozambicans to, to take care of their community. On the right there is my doctor friend in the middle, the one I was walking with in Mandimba. He now is in the provincial um, advancing his career. He offered his time to come down and train on this ultrasound we shipped in three years ago that was sitting around, and I was able to bring in some technicians from Malawi to fix the ultrasound. And... and my passion will come. I'm an introvert and I hate being up here, but some people look at that and I was, I said, I need $3,500 to bring training in this ultrasound. And then nobody gives. And then I started to realize, oh, but for me, this symbolizes life. Our maternal mortality and infant rate is in the tank. 
simply because we can't get a basic ultrasound for people. So he came in and we got it fixed and now he's doing some training um, to the local doctors and technicians on how to use ultrasound and identify basic things that we can intervene with. So for me, that's a huge victory in the last, uh, especially three years. Next. Ian, you know, I'll touch on discipleship and evangelism. That's a baptismal uh, Ian built in our front yard in our largely Muslim community. Uh, so that's a great thing, Ian. <laughs> Next. So advancing the kingdom, music, uh, Ian and some friends, colleagues writing songs in the, the dialect of the people we, we minister with and are friends with. Bibles, getting the word of God into believers' home, which is usually audio, like I mentioned. One audio Bible sadly costs 40 U.S. dollars. Can you imagine? <laughs> How many Bibles do we have on our bookshelves, right? To get a Bible in their hand, 40 U.S. dollars. Uh, groups, just sharing the word of God with neighbors, individuals, finding people of peace to share with. Um, discipleship training schools is a bigger YWAM for those that can read and write. And training and teaching, always equipping and sending people out, equipping and sending out. advancing the kingdom <laughs> next so this is my area um basically i i took my i worked over 20 years in america as a nurse in many areas uh transplant kidney liver pancreas diabetes i, I was already sitting there thinking of your friend and all those uh, and then i did uh homeless care for addicts i was a director of nursing at circle of the city in phoenix which is the largest homeless respite center in the country. Um, basically, I just took that and, and moved to Africa with those skills. So on the left there, we have little Shukarani. He was born with cerebral palsy, and his little walker there, Ian had welded at our local welders because we don't have access to walkers, wheelchairs, those kind of things. So we found a way um, to do that. He's eight, and he's probably about the size of a four-year-old. But when I met him, he couldn't even crawl but now he's walking with a walker. Um, he's a smart little guy. Uh, on the right there is me with my friend Amadou, um, who I'll share a little bit more in the next slide. Next. So what is palliative care? What does it look like in Mandimba? Palliative care really is for those with chronic illness or uh, end of life disease. Um, and the end point of palliative care is hospice care or end of life care which is very new in Mozambique. I started in central Mozambique. There's only one other person in Mozambique doing this kind of care, and that's my colleague and friend in central Mozambique. Um, so what we're doing is bringing, we've started a small, very small, that's my team on the left. That's Kashusha walking with a local government nurse that we just partnered with to take over why I'm gone. Again, sustainability, quickly bringing in locals. Um, she is an ex-Muslim background believer and Catholic, but she's got the heart. So again, discipling her. I know people say, you're crazy. She's not a believer. How can she do your work? But you identify those people of peace and partner with her.
I think what I see in the left, I was talking to a, a doctor there who's very high up, and he said, we have no vision in our country. We have no vision in my leadership. How do you have vision? And I just was reminded of that scripture that says, the man without vision will perish. But when you look at it, it's the man without vision from the Holy Spirit without, will perish. So this year, I just got a message three weeks ago from the provincial director said, oh my gosh, the capital is mandatory, like mandating we have palliative care in a program. He said, how do you know these things? And I said, well, a man without vision perishes. And so this is me in the middle with my colleague, Kashusha, I mentioned. That there's a young lady there um, lying down who was one of our colleague's cousins that died a couple years ago we cared for. This is Kashusha James um, learning how to care for people in their homes. Again, bringing dignity to people in all areas and quality of life until death is a big thing for me. Next. Again, some pictures. This was a, a big kind of moment for us being asked to come share at the provincial hospital with some of my colleagues up there on the top right about palliative care and, and dignity and uh, taking care of children with special needs. Again, yeah. Next. Sorry, some might be disturbed by the pictures. Um, but another thing I do on the top right there is I advocate for other missionaries and people in the district. So they'll call me, somebody's sick, a child may be dying. I get crazy pictures on WhatsApp of different skin issues. So on the right, on the top there, we have uh, the twins. This is what shape they were in when they came to our local hospital, and that's them in the middle now. I just think the, the favor of God and and us advocating um, the hospital took really, really good care of them, which is rare, and now they're surviving. And it's just a testimony, especially when missionaries partner with one another from a different org, that we serve the same God. And this is the outcome, is life here. So on the bottom left is my little new friend, Manuelito. He is eight years old, again, born with cerebral palsy. I found him in horrible shape near death, uh, malnourished with malaria, and he came to visit me after a month in the hospital, smiling and laughing with no fear. Um, and he's recovered very well. So we have him on our program. So what we do on our program is, depending on their needs, we visit them once a week, especially if they're a cancer patient, or maybe once a month. So um, this is Alex. Uh, he was in a horrible, horrible car accident in Malawi with a traumatic brain injury. I met him in very, very bad shape, and now he's walking with a stick, and we've got him a wheelchair. I hired a retired physical therapist uh, to work with him. Um, and so now, actually, he was in a very lonely state. His sister takes care of him. So I have some audio Bibles, New Testament, in his language, and I handed that to him. And I think one of my biggest uh, encouragements is when I came back the next week, he said, Isa's real, Jesus is real, and nobody's ever shared him, he said. And when I was listening to the audio, you and Kashusha and your friend Janet, you do what this Isa does, you do what Jesus does. Like, you help the sick and you love people. So now he's a believer in leading um, Bible studies at his home. And Ian has met him now too. So he's a light in our community. Next. This is Amadou. Um, he's now 16 years old. I've been taking care of him for about 18 months. That's when I first met him on the left there. 
for those of you in healthcare or uh, maybe know families, he had what we call stage four decubitus, which is to the bone because he couldn't walk. He had tuberculosis, he had horrible infections, um, and basically every witch doctor they could pay came to visit him and, of course, couldn't heal him. Um, it's the first time I've seen in my career those kind of wounds heal without surgery. That was just, I think, the grace of God leading the way I took care of him and got permission to take care of him in his home um, so he wasn't lugged off to the hospital to die. And so um, for probably, I would say, 12 months, he couldn't even get out of his house. Uh, now he's walking. Um, he has one more surgery that he needs left in Malawi. Uh, we've been able to get him into school and hired a tutor to teach him Portuguese. So he's a miracle story. Like, I can't even explain to you just looking at this, the miracle he is. And so he's now 16, 16 years old. So this is Amadou, or Domingos. And so Ian would go and play guitar for him. And it took probably two weeks before he would stop crying to where we could actually move him without pain. So this is for me why I'm there. And this is why we're looking to build a, a, a place, a clinic for people to come and receive the care they need because it's hard to do alone. No, I appreciate that. That prompts me to read this. I think sometimes I, I it takes me. I grew up Catholic, Hispanic Catholic. My friends were from Mexico, and but one thing I. Um, when I really hear from God, I grasp it. So when I used to pray, like, God, give me the eyes to see people the way you see them, and he does it, then I just, I grab onto that. And so when I see people like Amadou, and maybe it's the mother in me too, I see what, 
he could be, what God created him to be, but that goes back to dignity. Because if I look at some of these woo, leaders I work with, these male domineering leaders, if I look at them with any other eyes, right? I become angry. I want to, you know, whatever. So if I continue to look at people through the eyes Jesus did and with dignity in a war-torn country, it's a big deal. But this verse, I had an open vision, which I, I was, I don't, it's a long story, but it, I, about 10 years ago, but the one verse that, that I've really learned in the last five years is in Psalm 45, 16 through 17. And it goes along, it, today I just, yeah, it was fresh bread, what Ian said. Psalm 45, 16 through 17 says, Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetrate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. Again, it says, Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetrate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. And the word that I read in every Bible I have now is inheritance. So my little sermon note for today is legacy needs to be put aside. It's about his inheritance for his people. So when I look at Amadou, I've, I've learned like, you know, people, oh, you're an angel, you're, you know, the white savior. And I said, it's not about my legacy and putting my name on something. Like it's good that we, we have people that do great things but my focus is the Father's inheritance for Amadou. Because that's eternal. What did you sing today when we put everything at his feet? But we, we have a hard time doing that while we're living. <laughs> like, but when we see the Almighty God, it's going to be pretty easy to put it at his feet. So that's where my humility stays in check, is it's not about me. Yeah, he's, he's serving through me, but it's about the inheritance because before that, it tells, it says, listen, daughter, and pay careful, can, pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. That's pretty serious. <laughs> so for me, I've really learned, like, it's not about legacy, and that seems to be a big thing in culture right now. It's about God's inheritance and the miracle of salvation. And so that's what I see when I see people like Amadou suffering. Amen, yeah? That's my sermon, Pastor. Next. Yuseni, sorry, some may be disturbed, but this is little Yuseni. Uh, he was about eight years old. I took care of him for about six months. Um, so I was called out to a village. How far is Mpuina? 16 kilometers, nine miles from our home. Um, and his dad had seen me a year before at the hospital, but I didn't see them because he was covered. Because, of course, everybody wants to stare at him. So what you said, he... Yeah, and today what I really want to show is like just testimonies and other be a voice for the voiceless, like Yuseni. So he has a, what we call a Carpasi sarcoma, which is a cancer we usually see in HIV patients. Um, he was misdiagnosed several times um, because of the lack of education, the lack of healthcare, the lack of resource. 
um, and where he was in distance. So again, the parents started taking him to the witch doctors and any healer they could find. I've never met a set of parents like so determined. They said, Mama, if we had so much money, we would take a plane to anywhere to, to find his treatment. So, but he was rare in that he didn't have HIV, and that was part of the reason he was misdiagnosed is, you know, people get locked into, oh, this is only for this disease. So I met Yuseni, and we did get him properly diagnosed. It, it took me traveling with him in our personal car and up to the provincial hospital to get a biopsy, and by the grace of God and a, a good relationship with the doctor, it usually takes <laughs> six months to a year to get a biopsy result. By then, somebody's died. Um, so a lot of what I do is treating by what I've learned in America and by God just giving discernment. So we got a quick diagnosis within a week, which is rare. And he had one round of chemotherapy, but I knew because these, these nodules were all throughout his body. You can't see them in his lungs, uh, kind of like we call a metastatic disease. And so, but I became friends with the family and journeyed with them that short time and incorporated some art with him. And he would tell me how he wanted to buy this car and different things and just really just bring the presence of Jesus to their life. And so um, something you see in these areas, and you kind of see it in the States, is, you know, I started out outside on the porch with him playing and then as things progressed, the, the last two visits, I was in the house where he was dying. So I was able to care for him um, up until the, the day he died. So why I show this is it just it incorporates everything about palliative care, about dignity, about being Jesus to people for me. And what came out of this is now we have several um, Bible study groups in his village just because... We brought the presence in caring for somebody that was basically an outcast. Um, and so I'm still connected with his family today. Um, so he's really the reason why some days I just want to quit and I don't because of this. So what Ian talked about, um, my approach, maybe it seems a little bit more humanitarian, but say when I bring in an ultrasound, I don't just donate the ultrasound. My, my vision is to train people and empower people to use that ultrasound for dignity and life. So that's uh, my little buddy, Yuseni. Next. This is my friend, Kashusha James, and one of our colleagues from Holland, Daniel. And what we're doing there is uh, drawing up the plans for our health center. Next. And this is some daily life, and I will pass it over to Ian. Amen. You did, you did fantastic. <laughs> I got her to actually speak for 30 minutes. That's amazing. Thank you, Nikiski New Hope, for allowing that freedom for her. Um, yeah, so she went into that village to meet with Useni, and what ended up happening was the chief of that village was walking with James, who we also call Kashusha, and um, you'll see here in a minute. And he basically said, would you disciple me too? Which in this, in a Yao village like that, it's really rare for them to just, you usually have to have about a year-long relationship with them, walk with them, be there. Really, you're just looking for the permission to go in. And so James went, took some of our colleagues who you'll meet in the next slide, and that's what happened. They, it ended up being the exchange of life for death. And we see that a lot. You guys know that when, when someone dies in your life, I want you guys to hear this, the justice of God demands an exchange. 
I don't say that very often, but I felt that rise up in me. I needed, someone in this room needs to hear that. That should be a big encouragement. Because a lot of times the justice, the justice that we see and that we want on the earth tends to be a little bit more, um, he took a life, so we take a life. But after Christ and the new covenant, because, because of death, there is now resurrection. The justice of the kingdom, when life is taken, justice demands an exchange. And if you reconcile that with the Old Testament, it actually demands an exchange of seven times what was stolen. Well, that's easy. How do you? I, that's another, another sermon for another day. Maybe if I come back to Alaska, we can speak on kingdom justice. But I just want you to hear that. that are, that's Tammy. Hey! <laughs> it's so good to see you. I was like, uh, distracted, like, oh, you did come. Oh, that's good. And so the exchange here was that there's now five groups. So there's, there's two in the main village, there's three more, and then I got a picture, I don't know if you got the message from, uh, from Salvador last night, but a new group on top of that this week after they went out. And um, some of that is just because they've been able to be aggressive you know, on the motorbike instead of walking 12 miles or 24 miles round trip plus bikes or whatever. And so they're, you know, they're utilizing what's happened and they're reaching out. But really, I know it's because of that exchange with Yuseni in the spirit. And my four guys do too. So these pictures are, we say everyday life, they almost seem like they're too perfect, like they're set up. But I promise you, these are just moments we captured, uh, some of out of boredom, literally, when she was talking about uh, me helping build the houses and stuff because the Lord told me two years ago I'd have to start helping build the mud houses and stuff, which I am not a foreman, as Clay knows. I'm like, it wasn't super fun, but that meant a lot of days with my truck, bricks in the truck, driving back and forth, letting the villagers have work, and the kids would just like come up to the truck and just stare. Like, they love being around the Azungu, you know? And so they would like, stare at the truck, and I'm in the truck waiting, not wanting to get out, and though I'm a really a kid person, I love being with them, I know what's demanded once you step into that energy-wise, and so a lot of times I'd be sitting in the truck just like thinking up the next day or whatever and not really wanting to invest in the kids, and the, and the Lord had told me, Ian, you have time for them, and you're crossfitting and you've been like you have the strength for it too so you can like lift them up and chuck them around and like and i i realized that and one day i was like i'm just going to bring the guitar with me and what that ended up doing was it ended up that was an actual picture uh i don't remember maybe tobiah took that i don't know who took it but it ended up being where i started writing music in their dialect and that's been what has actually helped like push through the movement we're seeing. What's led to me digging a hole in my front yard, which the Muslims love to baptize people, I'm sure. Hopefully that. Um, and then this is our front porch. This is Asan and his wife, Rose. He was like kind of the first disciple. He was in the baptismal tank in that picture in the yellow shirt. And this is his brother, Isa, which is the word Jesus. Because when I disciple people, I get Jesus on my team. And uh, he actually is a rascal. It took him. A while. It took a while. 
And then that's maybe a block and a half from our house in distance, the one with the gals at the top with Carla. Um, she was actually Carla's first palliative care patient. Uh, she had leprosy or has leprosy, I guess we could say. And Carla's been helping maintain her life. So we built her a house in, the vi in our village, which was two kilometers away, so that she could be with her daughter, who takes really good care of her. And then this is a Bible study at um, about maybe 200 meters from our house off to the right. It's all within a rock's throw, you know, a long rock's throw for some people. You can go to the next slide. But it started with these four guys, all right? So we were in Mozambique for two years in the central part of Mozambique, and while we were there, God was preparing us to go. We didn't think we'd leave. We were working with the Shona people, and we never thought we were going to leave. And um, we were actually gearing up that we might even move into the village. We were on a base, like a, a proper base. It was in a village, but we were on a proper base with people. And uh, the boys were starting to feel a little claustrophobic, and we were feeling the spirit like we might move out. And as, as that happened, Carla had been working for six months in palliative care with her colleague because they went on furlough and uh, they were so kindred. Carla actually helped build up her ministry for her with her, um, her local colleagues. And then when she came back, the Lord called us to the north and kind of gave us a call within the call because of something that happened with a Muslim family in our central local area, and we really felt a calling to this Yao people. Now, these four guys are actually not Yao. They're Makua. They tend to be within Catholic, Muslim, animistic as well, but usually the Makua are more educated. They usually go through junior high, high school. Even though the education system is not good, they usually learn Portuguese, and they at least learn to read and write. However... 50 to 60% of all of Mozambique's illiterate anyway. The whole country. So they're still rare. And the reason why they could read and write so well and speak a little English was because Peace Corps had come in. And so they knew Peace Corps since they were 10, and they plugged into those systems close by the house. And I'm grateful for that today because... I was going crazy the first two years in the North Village because I was only basically learning language and through charades trying to figure out how we were going to meet with people, this Yao people group. And the Yao people group are three million people throughout Tanzania, Zimbabwe, I mean, sorry, uh, Malawi, some in Zimbabwe, and Mozambique. And in our area of Mandimba, um, if you were to go maybe in a 300-mile square radius, there's at least half a million Yao. And so that you can understand a small portion of what the, their culture is like and how entrenched they are in my grandma said, my grandma said, my grandma said, we're on a border town. When we, our house feel, is in the bush, but it feels like it's in the bush. But we're, we're actually only about seven miles from Malawi. So there's one border town with one gas station, and then it's 100 miles in any direction to get what you need. So we're grateful for that. But if you go down the three miles into town, a lot of people speak Portuguese and Makua. If you go four steps past our village, it's completely Yao for 100 miles. And nobody speaks Portuguese and nobody reads and writes. It's that dramatic of a difference. So my Portuguese 
Juan, my Portuguese is failing right now, big time. I'm, I'm, uh, I only speak the dialect now, really, because the, the Portuguese isn't getting used. Well, these guys came into my life because one of our guards said you could go down to our village, our Makua village, and you can share the word of God. And so our cars at the time were horrible. And so I started riding a bike 12 kilometers, about six or seven mile round trip to their village and back. And Samurai and Salvador took me under their wing and I took them under their wing and they were hungry for God, really hungry. And we started translating through English and Portuguese into Makua, so like three, three different languages, these Bible studies. And what ended up happening was those two, the Lord just changed and wrecked their life. And as they were getting changed and wrecked, James came into the picture from about a mile away in town. And Ferreira came in a year and a half after that. They were all together at some points, but really it came... At, Samurai ended up being basically the son of the chief in that village. I didn't know that when I was discipling it, and our group started to fall apart a bit. And Samurai came up to me and said, "My grandpa, my grandpa, my uncle, my great uncle said, I want you to decide. I want you to disciple me." Again, rare. So I went and did that, and that's what caused the explosion amongst them. And then, as I was discipling these guys. Uh, back and forth three days a week by bike, they started to feel the call of, of the Lord in their life. And about two or three years in is when I introduced them to who YWAM was because I felt the Lord say, there's going to be two at a discipleship training school. And I didn't know which two were going to say yes. Um, and it ended up being, what was the first year was Kashusha Salva, right? Or, and then it ended up being Samurai Freire the next year. And so they started going out after this, and their goal was they wanted to reach the Yao, which was a big deal because the Makua and the Yao, they intermarry, but they don't get along real well because one sees themselves higher than the other and one's more educated type thing. And they felt because of that, that chief right before he passed, he saw the shift in the chief's heart. They all felt the call and said, we got to go reach we got to go clean up the blood on the land. And so they ended up becoming our, our local YWAM team. They've gone through discipleship training school. We helped raise the funds for them. They speak English, Yao, Makua, um, and James is the guy that helps. He ends up being the guy that's had the medical call in his life. Salvador is an amazing evangelist and willing to go. Samurai and Ferrer ended up being education. So within the four guys, we actually met you know, almost all of the seven mountains that, that we were trying to focus on a community, and we really had nothing to do with it. It was just we were available, and God was gentle with me and found a couple guys that could have speak English a bit, you know, so that I could actually do something and not just sit in the village and feel like I wasn't doing anything. All right? And so I want to finish with this. If you can go to the next slide. There's a question up there. All right? What ended up happening through this is that when they were established, the Lord moved. I had been going on prayer walks every Friday morning down that road to Eusenis and just waking up and asking the Lord this question. How many of you guys, if you struggle with prayer, a lot of it's because you don't know what to pray, right? 
The disciples did too. The only thing they ever asked of Jesus was, can you please teach us to pray, right? And so what I learned in that process was I don't need, need to pray anything. What I need to do is listen. And I asked one question, Father, what do you want me to pray for the Yao? And I started praying his heart. And in one of those encounters, he said to me, it still hits me. So I'm out in the bush running, kind of having a pity party for myself, and I, I asked that question. What do you want me to know about Mozambique, and what do you want me to pray for the Yao? And, and he told me, it was great, he says, the flood is coming. And I'm like, okay. Like, do I got time to get out? Like, you know, because I live right in front of a river, and that river floods. And so I'm like, and he said, the, the flood's coming. And no one's getting out of it. And I'm like, okay, I think you mean the Yao. It's their time. And it was like, yeah, there was a confirmation. That's what he meant. And then I said, well, what do you want me to do? And silence. Just like the talk I held my friends last night. Because that's what we do in the West. What do you want me to do? Obviously, you told me what to you, This is what's coming, so you got to do something, right? We're doers, aren't we? Like, got to do something. So then it was quiet. I'm like, dude, I about fell on the ground running when you told me this, and now you're quiet. And then I realized, okay, ask a different question. So I said, what do you want me to know about this? And he said, he, he said no one's going to get out of it. And I said, so what do, you, what do you need from me? Do you, how can I partner with you in this? And he says, I want you to push them in. I'm like, I could do that. I'm good at that stuff, right? I want you to push them in. And, you know, it's so funny. When you, you wait on the Lord like you, you just want to listen. If you just want to listen, he puts you in the place that demands uncomfort so that he'll be the comforter, but he also puts you in the place where he can protect you the best. If he had told me that while I was living in Jordan or Iraq, I promise you I'd be dead already. I'm not the guy to be in the Jordan because I, I feel that presence and the boldness to pray or to speak, and I can't hold my tongue. And he knew that, and he's like, and so now's the time. So you've been silent. In fact, I stuck you in a village where you can't even speak. It's going to take you two years to learn the dialect. And now that you're praying and asking, it's like, now I want you to push him in. And so when they were established, what shortly happened afterwards is that guy, Isa's brother, Jesus' brother over here, he had an encounter with Carla and the Holy Spirit about something that he was, had, had done with abuse and the cultural system there. And it changed everything. It just rolled out through the village. And we have missionaries that we know there that have been there for 25 years and haven't seen one person come to Christ, not one. And right now, I can walk you through the village and actually call out percentages of the village. Like that whole corridor right there is willing to take it on the chin for Jesus. But when I walked into that village, when we walked in the first time, we couldn't pick one. You know, there was no, you have to go down the river. 
Like one day when the flow was coming, he's like, I want you to, I want you to dig a hole. Someone prayed, and they're like, I want you to dig a hole, dig a hole. It was like in these messages, people were saying, like, what the heck does a hole mean, right? And then Gideon has um, a vision, or he was paint- we were hearing from the Lord one day, and he has this, I don't remember what it was, you drew something, or it was a vision about a bunch of people in the front yard getting baptized by our family. And then all of a sudden, it hit me. I was like, okay, they're going to think I'm the craziest Zungu again. I'm just going to dig a hole in the front yard. We're going to fill it with water and see what happens. It works in the West, like slip and slide. and play. Might as well, right? Six months later, there's like 50 people, husbands and wives in the Yao culture, baptized, you know? And they're the ones now that are three and four generations deep. On Sunday and Monday, I meet with them, but pretty much it's these four guys and the, the yao that I've given the, the permission, these guys can't even read and write. Like, the first year I was discipling them, it was how to interpret dreams. Well, that sounds biblical. Yeah, that's him. That's Jesus. Yeah, that one might not be, right? You should probably go to the Lord and ask him what he wants you to know about this dream. Because we couldn't even speak enough to preach, Right? But when we got an audio Bible to them, we got the Word of God in their dialect, it took off. And so I want to I wrap up with this thought, this question, all right? I have the verses down, but I'm not going to read them. But if you're writing just to check my theology, if you want to, I'm using Matthew 20, 28, Mark 10, 45, John chapter 13, 12 through 18, and John 17. But the question I want to ask you guys as we leave is this. Who, who do you really serve? Now, I want that to settle for a second because that can, I could have started the message like that today, but we're talking about the mission. I really could preach on this. Who do you really serve? When you hear that, I'm guessing as a Westerner, it can almost sound condemning. It can almost start, guilt can start to rise up. That is not what I'm asking the question for. I want you to feel that, but I also want you to hear very quickly, that's not why I'm asking the question. Who do you really serve? Okay, this has kind of wrecked me the last few months thinking about this as I was preparing to come to Alaska. Let me ask it a different way. Or who really serves you? I wrote down what you said earlier when we were taking communion. You said, you hit the suffering servant. You know that description Isaiah 55 is actually Christ serving you? When we read Matthew 20, 28, right, all that stuff, the, the summary of those passages is this. Jesus is in the upper room. He's washing the disciples' feet. All right, he gets to Peter. You can all laugh when you even hear the word Peter, Right? Because he was funny. Like, he said everything we wanted to say. And that's why, guess what? That's why God, that's why Jesus talked to him the most. He said some dumb things, but he was confessing honesty. And do you know that the Father doesn't work with untruth? He won't. He'll let you sit for 10 years out of love. 15 years because he doesn't want to say something that he doesn't believe about you. He'll let you say it all day long. And Peter was just like, he would just say it. And he's like, okay, I can work with that. Let me tell you actually, knucklehead, what I really meant by that, right? And so Peter's like, you can't wash my feet, right? 
And Jesus is like, if, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Right? And we see it as, a lot of times in the West, as this service Jesus did. But I really want you to hear this question. Who do you really serve? Peter goes, well, then wash all of me. He's so funny. Peter is hilarious. Right? He's up on the top of the mountain in Matthew 17. He sees Elijah and Moses with Jesus, the glory of God on him. He's like, dude, did you use Tide? It's so clean. He's like white, right? And Peter's like, that's why I was so like clueless about building houses for a while. I was like, I know this isn't God that's saying this, but he didn't stop me. Peter's like, we should build three houses, one for each of you. And he doesn't even get it out of his mouth. And God's like, dude, you missed it. This is my son. Listen to him, right? And he has to remove Moses and Elijah. They disappear because Peter's clueless, right? They're up there for Jesus. They're not even, and it's so funny. And so Peter's like, wash all of me. And Jesus is like, dude, if you're clean, I don't need to give you a bath. But you're not going to understand why I'm doing this. But later you will, right? He also is walking with them in these other passages I mentioned, and he says to them, you know, the Gentiles, the people that are outside of our community, lord over you, their authority. But with you guys, it shouldn't be that way. You should be servants to each other, and the greatest among you will be your servant. For, everyone knows the passage, let's say it. For the Son of Man did not come, what? Say it. He didn't come to be, it's hard to say, isn't it? What did he come for? He came to serve. This rocked me a couple months back as I was reprocessing. I'm like, I don't serve Jesus. Now, how many of you old schoolers in here are like, okay, you're getting close. on? Like, bear with me. You don't serve Jesus. Can we just get an amen on that? You can't. It's impossible. He says it over and over. I give you four passages right there. Check this out. John 17, he seals up the deal right before he dies and says this in John 17. It's like three verses. This is so good. The high priestly prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. It's really simple. You guys ready for this? That they know you, the only true God, and himself, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Check this out. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave. Everybody say it. Me to do. Not Jackie, not Clay, not Tammy, Jesus. Hmm. So when he died and said the words, it is, who was he talking about? Himself, his work. Who do you serve? Right now, your brain should be going, I'm sorry for the old ones in here, the older elders in here. I am not speaking blasphemy right now. 
it's right here. You cannot serve Jesus. It's impossible. He doesn't want you to. He wants to wash your feet. I know that's hard, you guys. We should be weeping right now over this thought. I can barely handle it each day as I rethink of it. Because I grew up in such good circles and wonderful circles. But the word of God says, you don't need to serve Christ. He already finished it. He served you in it. Okay, well then, what am I doing? Who did he accomplish the work for? His father. So who do you serve, guys? Yeah, that's who you serve. You serve, remember John 20? Mary, I love, I love that passage because the guys are up in the upper room afraid. The tough guys. Peter and John had run down to the, to the, the cave, saw the linen, saw everything. John made sure everybody knew that he beat Peter down there, right? And then he runs back, scared. Locks the door, John 20 says. Meanwhile, Mary's at the tomb like, I don't want to leave. And she's the one who gets to see Jesus, of course, because she didn't run away in fear. So they're sitting up there, and Jesus, in his humor, because he's amazing, the doors are locked. He walks through the door, right? He walks through the door, says, peace be with you, shows him, shows him his scars and stuff, and everybody, it says the disciples were happy. Yeah, no kidding, because he's not a ghost. But what's so funny is he walked through like a ghost. Jesus is funny. Right? In our culture, in the Yao, they get that. Because everything's about chippy, about darkness. The word we use all the time, you said, we speak life. Ms. Burlas, you said, we say that all the time in the village now. We say, we say, wumi, wumi. We say, the greeting there is, is asigali, uh, asigali shenene, stay with health. I don't say that. I say asigali ni wumi. I say with life. I've taught my disciples to say it because everything fear-driven is darkness and it's fear-driven about death in that culture. Well, same with these guys. So what does he say? Peace be with you. Shows them the thing and they're happy because he's not a ghost. He's not a, a demon, which is exactly how it is with our disciples. But what he says is, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. He says it right afterwards. And what did he say to Mary when the guys ran? He says, tell your brothers, your scared little brothers, tell them, I'm going to be with my Father and your Father, with my God and your... Who do you serve? You serve God the Father, and Christ, I know this is hard, serves you. And he wanted it that way. But what's amazing about that is you can't accomplish and complete the work unless he does. So unless we humble ourselves like Christ, in Christ, through Christ, we can't even receive the service he's giving us. Does that make sense? And so can you accept that Jesus has finished his work and now serves you? I don't know. That, that could be a journey. It's one for me right now. So that 
you can serve the Father and others in the work he's given you to accomplish in Christ Jesus. And what is that work? That's the question I want to ask you guys as, as we pray and leave. What is that work? So this question today, I want you guys in a minute to just close your eyes. I'm going to pray for you right now. And ask the question, what is the work you want me to accomplish? Father, how do you want Jesus to serve me in that? And then I want you to ask, what do you want me to know about that through what Ian and Carla said today? If that connects with us, and you, want, and you want to pray and partner, great. If it encourages you to actually allow Jesus to serve you in what you're supposed to accomplish, may it embolden you today. Not far from here, in 1997, I flew back here, <clears throat> was on an altar like this. I fell on my face, and I started praying, Father, I'm not going to leave here until you bless me. I had seen my youth pastor's son, my good friend Bo, up there before me. I'd seen his life get wrecked, and I was things were changing for me, and I ran up to the altar. And I'm, t I'm telling you, I was there a long time weeping and praying. And the lights went down, and the doors were being locked, and two faithful men and women of your community went up to me and laid their hands on me and gave me two words. They told me music, which I had never heard, which happened later. I became a music missionary and a songwriter which I believe was a mantle my dad had left at the altar. And they gave me the word father. Which at the time I thought, okay, cool, I'll be a father. My dad was such a good father, I was afraid of being one. A lot of people are afraid to be a father because they never had one. I was afraid of one because I had such a good one. But what I found out actually what it meant was that everywhere I went in Africa, everywhere they were going to greet me, hello, Baba. Hello, Baba, Baba Ian, Baba Ian, Baba, hello. Ba Every day I hear the word Baba 150 times. How many of you guys know the word Baba comes from the word Abba? It means Father. So at an altar, a, a Nikiskiite mom who y'all know here, because their son is in Japan laid hands on me and said, I hear the word Father. And I believed it. And now every day I hear it. But not just because I'm a father to my kids who I love, because he's allowing me to remind them of what Baba really means. And then I remembered that when I was really, really young, like baby young, my dad had a nickname for me. And so I called him to confirm it. Dad, what was that name you used to call me until I was five? Oh, I called you Baba all the time. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you were prophesying the same word Jeannie Carter prophesied over me and the same word I was going to walk in if we just listen. So close your eyes, please. I know I don't want to force you to close your eyes, but close your eyes. I'm going to pray for you. Just ask the Lord, what do you want me to know about the work you have for me? What do you want me to know about that? Father, I pray that you'd open up the hearts and the eyes, the ears of these precious ones here and do what you did for me all those years ago. 
that you would help them to hear what you want them to know. Not what, you, what they need to do, but what you want them to know about it. Holy Spirit, come and rest your promise on their heart and release the service of Christ into their life that they might be emboldened to fulfill what God the Father has done through them already if they'll just walk it out since the foundations of the earth. In Jesus' name.